Welcome to the latest edition of City Parents Talk. I'm Anna Richards from City Parents and today I'm delighted to be joined by Emily Acevedo. Emily is Director of HR for Empire Office, a provider of works-based solutions, and she's based in New Jersey in the US. Emily is also solo mother to Sebastian, who has Emmanuel syndrome. She's kind enough to talk to me today about her life with him, from the diagnosis, its impact on her life and career, day-to-day living, and how she manages as a single parent. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. First of all, please, can you tell us about Sebastian, about Emmanuel syndrome, what that involves, and when he was first diagnosed and, and how you went through that initial process with him. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so excited to talk to you all. Um, so Sebastian has a very rare genetic condition called Emmanuel syndrome. Emmanuel syndrome didn't really get its name until about 2006 because we just didn't really have a lot of cases of Emmanuel syndrome. Emmanuel syndrome is very rare, only about 500 cases in the world that we know of. There may be more out there, but we just we just don't know because oftentimes Emmanuel syndrome presents as cerebral palsy. So when a child is diagnosed with cerebral palsy, you know, they get the the diagnosis, they start going to all the doctors and pretty much the doctors just kind of work on, on what the issue is and whatever the underlying genetic condition is, we, you know, doesn't really get discussed too much. We're uh, tend to be more foot forward when it comes to, you know, what we can do to alleviate pain for the children or, you know, just give them a better quality of life really overall. And so when Sebastian was about 10 months old, his pediatrician noticed that he wasn't quite getting onto the milestones that most, you know, 10 months to 12 month olds tend to aspire to. And that was kind of our first inclination that, yep, there's something definitely going on with Sebastian. Um, And so that's when we started to get referred out to, you know, various different doctors. So we went to cardiology, we went to neurology, we went through orthopedics, and when we went to neurology, neurology decided to just go ahead and, and let's, let's rule out some genetic conditions. So we did a, what was called a chromosomal array on Sebastian. And if you ever went to medical school or took science in high school or, or college, it's when you start to look at the chromosomes and try to figure out, you know, is there things that are kind of in the wrong place? And if they are, could this be why? Sebastian is is the way that he is and it turns out you know we couldn't rule out anything because it it did come up on the chromosomal array Um, and what Emmanuel syndrome is is that there's pieces of chromosome 11 and pieces of chromosome 2 that not have only switched places but in the process of switching places they didn't get to their spots correctly So this is usually caused by a carrier parent and the carrier parent has the places switched, but they're in perfect position. So um, with that, you tend to not notice anything as a carrier parent. You go on with your life. You don't, you know, never have to be worried about like any additional cancers or anything that you need to be worried about. But what does happen is if you do decide to conceive, there's about a, a third chance that, that you may have a child um, with Emmanuel syndrome and or you will miscarry. And more than likely when you do miscarry, that child probably had Emmanuel syndrome. So the body tends to recognize when, you know, something's not quite right and tries to, to relieve itself of it. With my pregnancy, Sebastian was a perfect pregnancy. You know, he was growing on time, everything, you know, his, his due date never changed. You know, all the wonderful things about pregnancy that anyone could ever want you know, Sebastian definitely fit the bill for it. 
So Sebastian was very late in being diagnosed because, you know, he was reaching certain milestones, you know, trying to grab for things, looking at things, looking at you, um, smiling, you know, things like that, that we weren't really very concerned about in the beginning. So um, when he was about 10, 11 months old, we were referred out to neurology. Neurology discovered that he had an extra chromosome. And then we were referred out to genetics. But in the process of waiting for these appointments, you know, we had to deal with his heart condition. So he had a heart condition called PDA, patent ductus arteriosus, which basically means that there's a valve the baby needs in utero where, you know, the baby's getting their, their blood and everything is kind of coming through. And then once the child is born, that valve tends to just kind of dissolve and go away on its own. And with Sebastian, it never did. So what was happening was over-oxygenated blood was going back into its system. And we thought, oh, maybe this could be why he's so hypotonic. And maybe this could be why he has a couple of other conditions. But really all that was, was just kind of compounding the, the symptoms of the syndrome. Um, with that, we discovered that he only has one kidney, which is very, very rare in and of itself, right? Not as rare in Emmanuel syndrome, but very rare in and of itself. Um, and there's no one in my family that has a history of, of only one kidney. That's, you know, that's just not something that we, that we know of. So once all these things kind of started compounding upon itself and we got the diagnosis of Emmanuel syndrome, we just kind of went the way of, all right, let's check head to toe, right? So we go to neurology, we're going to the ENT doctor, make sure his ears are okay. He does have some mild hearing loss. Um, eye doctor, same thing. He does have some, some vision issues. And we just kind of went down, you know, that, down the list of all the body parts just to make sure that, you know, if, if not okay, right? Using that word is kind of, you know, broad when you have a child with disabilities, but just making sure that, you know, we touched all the spots and we're aware of, you know, any future issues and just trying to resolve what we can so that he has the best quality of life that he possibly can. So that was our boat into special needs. You know, we weren't lucky enough for him to be diagnosed in utero. We weren't lucky enough for him to be diagnosed in his first few months of life, but we did manage to play catch up. And with that, it kind of worked out because a number of his surgeries, you kind of, children can't have until they reach a certain weight or they reach a certain age. Right. So it worked out for us because then we were able to really, you know, list all the things that needed to get done and we could have got, you know, we got them done pretty, pretty promptly. What a whirlwind roller coaster whirlwind. first few Absolutely. years, which I'm Absolutely. sure has continued to some degree. Remind me how old he is now and, and what's life like day to day for him? What disabilities does he display on a daily basis and what sure. support do you need for him? So he's, he's 11 and a half. Which is, which is also very rare for children with Emanuel syndrome. You know, things tend to happen to, to children with, with ES. And, you know, for him to make it to 11 without so much of the complexities as, as other ES children was very lovely for us. You know, he does not luckily have a, a seizure disorder at this time. So that's one less thing we, we have to worry about. But he is nonverbal, you know, so, you know, he vocalizes, he does the ooh-ah to try to get your attention, but he cannot formulate words. And the reason for this is because in his brain, he kind of has like these dark matter spots um, because that's just kind of how his brain, you know, was built in utero and it's just kind of how his brain grew as he got older. And, but there's a particular very, very dark spot over the speech center of his brain. So, you know, we know he's trying to make words and he's trying to communicate 
It's just what actually comes out is a, is a garbled mess, you know? So if you think about the little, little like 13 month olds where you're like, yeah, sure, tell me about your day. And they're just kind of like garbling. Um, that's Sebastian as well. He hasn't really quite evolved from, from that. Um, but with that being said, we believe his receptive vocabulary is about 150 to 200 words. So he definitely understands to an extent what you're saying. He just can't replicate the words and, and tell you. So we do a lot of yes, no questions. Um, you know, he has this, a talker that, you know, has two buttons and we put yes and no on it. Um, we've evolved to hands, right? You know, yes and no uh, for the quick things. And I would say like 95% of the time, you know, if he's not just being cranky, he, he gets it right. Or what we believe is, is, you know, could be right. He is non-mobile. So he, he's starting to take steps. He has a walker, but he's not one to just get up from his, from the couch and start walking around the house. He's very cautious. He's very, very much one of those kids that feels like if I can't do it right the first time, Probably not going to do it for a hot minute, mom. Sorry. <laughs> um, he also has a G tube. So a lot of his uh, fluids, a lot of his medications go through the tube. Um, and that happened when he was about seven years old. He got very ill and we couldn't quite figure out what was happening. We ran probably all, all the tests you could think of and never really managed to see what happened. But with that, Sebastian just kind of refused to eat. And when we could give him a, a cup with a straw in it and he would just down those like, like crazy, he started to push them away. And I remember when he was two and a half and we had a, a, a surgery for him because he had a couple of intestinal malrotations in his intestines that was causing him to vomit profusely. And I remember once we had that surgery done, there was another surgeon who came in and he said, man, can I ask you why you decided to go against the G-tube surgery? And I said, well, you know, he's eating okay, so why would I want to do that? And he said, well, what if he wakes up one day and decides he doesn't want to eat? And I just kind of looked at him and laughed. I was like, what are you talking about? Like, why would a child wake up and just decide he doesn't want to eat anymore? It happens, you know, and it, it could happen because of illness. It could happen because of stubbornness. It could happen for a lot of different reasons. And, uh, you know, that's definitely something that Sebastian picked up. So he lost a lot of weight. And we decided with his, with his GI, with his surgeon, that you know, now's the time. And we did the G-tube. And as much as I was scared and as much as I thought, oh my God, like this is just the worst thing ever. It ended up being like the best thing we probably could have ever done for him. It, it truly increased his quality of life. He was gaining weight. You know, we didn't have to worry about trying to shove things in his mouth. He did start to slowly eat after the fact because he started to become hungry and he started to kind of show all the effects that go along with hunger and, and wanting to eat. So now he does mostly his medications through tube, which is fine because I mean, what kid wants to drink medication, right? Like they never taste good to begin with, you know, so that worked out, that actually worked out really, really great for him. So those are his, his biggest hurdles in regards to his condition. I think he gets the most frustrated when he feels that people don't understand what he's saying. So once we switch to like, yes, no questions and kind of giving him the opportunity to somewhat express himself, the frustration level has gone down significantly. And if you think about it, you know, like what kid doesn't like not being listened to? I remember when I was his age and I didn't like not being listened to. So, um, you know, I feel that a lot of his responses are absolutely appropriate for his age or even where we believe he stands, you know, mentally. Um, 
and you know he's very happy usually for the most part he's a very happy kid you kind of know what's there's something wrong going on if he's not you know fairly happy we've been doing a lot of school uh, at home due to the pandemic and I had no idea that he could actually sit in front of the iPad for as long as he did like listening to the lessons that was incredible and anyone who sees it says wow man I can't even get my kid to sit still for an hour but your kid can sit for like an hour and a half two hours just watching the teachers kind of do their thing and you know he's a really he's a really good kid I I really have you know no no real complaints outside of his you know he was born in a body that you know was never going to suit him and so what we do is we just try to make that body as as bearable as possible and and make sure that he at least has some opportunity to do the things that we would want his body to do. It's so lovely to hear about him. And I can imagine that frustration when he's not being heard or understood. You know, similar to my children, when speech is developing, it's a big milestone, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So and that makes complete sense. And what care and support do you need and do you have for him on a daily basis, Emily? Yes. So one of the reasons I moved back to New Jersey was because of the way they handle education for special needs children, as well as the amount of care that I knew I was going to be able to get versus where I was living in Atlanta. So he has nursing, he has 12 hours a day of nursing. And usually when he, when he was going physically to school, the nurses would come with him to school. In the beginning, the Board of Ed was not on board. So I had to sue the Board of Ed and I, and I won. And we were able to get the nurses on the bus to go with him to and from school. And with that, now the nurses are at home. They're at home for 12 hours a day. And his school has been wonderful during this pandemic and has been very, very understanding because they've had to close down so many times due to COVID exposure. So they prefer for the more fragile kids to kind of stay at home so they don't have to worry too much about, about the little ones. But it was a fight, you know, it was a fight to get that care and it was a fight to get, get him in the school that I felt was going to suit him best. But it's great to be able to have 12 hours a day, you know, that, that gives me time to get up, do my job for my, you know, for my eight hours in the day. And then I have with him, you know, the evenings, I have with him the fun time where we can sit and we can watch cartoons or we can watch a movie or we can just read a book. And it's, it's really, it has really changed my ability to be a different kind of caregiver, right? Because most of his needs are, are kind of done with, with the nurses. And so I'm able to just be mom. You know, he still lets me, of course, change his diaper and, of course, lets me feed him because he knows that those needs have to be met. But he's no longer, you know, this constant ball of frustration because now he has a number of people that can understand him. As far as the education goes, they always told me, you know, well, you don't want him to learn signs that aren't true American Sign Language signs because you don't know where he's going to be in life and you wouldn't want people to try to understand him and they can't. And I went with that theory for a while until the pandemic when I realized, no, you know what? People can meet him halfway or people can meet him where he's at because there will never be a time in his lifetime where he's not going to get proper care and those caregivers will be trained. So rather than continuing the frustration of forcing him to kind of meet him at our standards, which for a child with a disability like his, that's asking a lot. You know, that's, that's asking, a, a, that's asking a lot. 
So, you know, now we've kind of altered the way his education goes at home and, and we're meeting him at least halfway. So he's good with the yes, no questions. You know, it's very rare that he gets frustrated when you ask him yes, no questions, unless he's just tired and just doesn't want to talk to you anymore, which I think we all feel that way, you know, most of the time. I don't want to, I don't want to answer, you know, do you want to watch Frozen for the 15th time? So, you know, things have definitely altered my perception and my perspective when it comes to what I feel his education, what he could tolerate in his education and the, the forward momentum that we want to aspire to eventually when he does go back to, to learning full time in, in a school building. That's wonderful, Emily. So you've talked about a big life choice that you made there when you moved to New Jersey for the education. So huge adjustments you've made, I was going to say had to make, but of course you've made them. We all make decisions all the time for our children, but they're big ones for you. What about your career choices and what about working life? It struck me when you talked particularly about the diagnosis and and ongoing, it must take a lot of your time. How have you managed your career, your ambition and also just the daily work? When you have a diagnosis as severe as Emanuel syndrome, the doctors tend to throw the book at you. I mean, I have heard everything from your child's going to be a vegetable. Just go ahead and like, just stick him in a home because like, he's not going to amount to anything. Like I've had doctors actually say that to me. I've had doctors just kind of be surprised that he even exists. Like my OBGYN, when I went for a permanent birth control, you know, they go, they run through the questions of, are you married? Are you looking to get married? Do you have children? You know, things like that. And when I said, yeah, I have one son, you know, he has Emanuel syndrome and they're like, oh, what's that? And I would say it's a duplicate 22nd. And they would just look at me and they would say, he's alive. It's on the non-viable list. If you were to become pregnant and you were to have, you know, some type of, of test that were to tell you, you know, if your child has any type of chromosomal abnormalities, Emanuel syndrome is on the non-viable list. So they tend to tell people, listen, this is a fetus that is probably going to be non-viable. And they're not 100% wrong because a lot of the children that have been born that I am aware of, you know, they had a lot of, lot of complex issues. We were very lucky with Sebastian. The fact that we were even a late diagnosis in my Emanuel syndrome family group, like it's, it's a big deal, you know, it's a big deal. So one of the first things I had to do was quit my job. I was working at Coca-Cola. And there was no way that you can do three doctor's appointments a week for however long. It's just not possible. And I hate to say that, right? Because I kind of want to make everyone believe that anything is possible. We're, we're raised to believe you can do anything. You can do everything. Just, just go out and do it. And the truth of the matter is if you don't have the support and if you don't have people around you that understand and is willing to help you take the lead, there's not a whole lot you can do, you're, you're kind of stuck with the support that you have. So, you know, I had to make the decision of, can we survive on food stamps? Can we survive on any type of welfare? You know, what can I do? And we did that for about a year and a half. I was out of work. Sebastian underwent four surgeries at that time, including his malrotation surgery, um, and his heart surgery. And so, you know, once I went back into the workforce, I, I had a gap in my resume, right? Usually, People tend to be understanding, but I learned kind of early on when I started with my job hunt, it's better if people don't know. It's better if people don't know, just because, you know, when you start to think about, you know, a parent with a disabled child at home, for whatever reason, their first question or their first concern is, is this person going to be able to come into work every day, right? And really, regardless of disabled child or not, 
that's kind of a question that you would have for everyone regardless, right? I would think, but it tends to be a little bit more prevalent in my interviews if I do choose to talk about Sebastian for whatever reason. During the the entire time of, of Sebastian's life, I worked in IT for about 12 years. I did everything from help desk to creating software and deploying it, depending on what the company needs. And I realized I'm not really making a lot of money doing this. <laughs> the pay gap is severe. It, it really, really is. And not only is, is the pay gap severe, but the respect factor is, is near non-existent. Come into someone's office and I would say, hi, I'm Emily, the network administrator. And the first thing they would say is, but you're a girl. It's like, yes, I'm, I'm aware. I'm, I'm very much aware. <laughs> yeah, I'm a girl. Here's your username and password. Let me know if you have any questions. So there was always this discontentment. So I took a very long look at myself. I took a very long look at the type of industry that I was in, and I decided to do a career change. And so I went from IT to HR because I was thinking, where in a company can I utilize all my IT knowledge, right? Everything that I know with tech, which is a lot. And I did it. I changed careers back in 2014 and I, I went into human resources and I don't necessarily regret it because there is an aspect of, yes, oh, wow, you know, IT, you know, vendors, you know, product. And I'm able to talk to, to people on a technical level that other HR people have not been able to, to speak on. But it's also been just as hard because, right, you want to mentor your, your employees as much as you possibly can. But then I also have a little bit of some, some slight bias, right? Because here I am with a disabled child and I'm able to get to the office every day. So, you know, there's a lot of things that I, I would take and try to mentor employees on, on how to do things better. And then there's some things that you just can't, right? If you don't have care for your kid, you just don't have, you just don't have care for your kid. The culture of workplace plays such an important factor as to whether or not women can find work. I didn't realize going into HR, there's so much more of that than there is paperwork, right? Mm -hmm. Than there is trying to automate something or put in a new system. I probably coach or train employees, I would say at least five employees a week that will come to me with varying questions or concerns or issues. I get everything. I get a little bit of everything. And, you know, it's nice to be able to talk to employees and, you know, they know, a lot of them do know that I have Sebastian and the ones that don't, it's just because I haven't really had a chance to talk with them on a personal level. Right. So it's been an interesting ride. It's, it's not impossible. It's not impossible to change careers. It's not impossible to, to do the job. Right. But if I had a choice of staying at home with my son versus working full time, I mean, it's a no brainer. I would stay at home with my son, right? I have no idea how long my son will be on this planet. So, you know, it's a very hard decision for families in general to decide, you know, do I, do I want to go back into the workforce? Will that be something that I can contribute to the family or will that just be more of a detriment and, and my son kind of have more frustrations with me not being at home. I'm lucky enough to have the care that I do and to have the family that, that helps that I do because otherwise it would not be possible. If you do not have the care, if you do not have the support, nothing is possible. When they say it takes a village to raise a child, it takes like two for a disabled yeah. one, right? And my job is to make sure that we have a roof over our heads and we can afford food. So taking it in that perspective is a little bit of an easier pill to swallow. These are things that I need to accomplish so that he has a better quality of life. 
And, you know, I always make sure that people never feel guilty about coming to work or having to work. It's a real pressure on, on those, whether you have children who are disabled or you just have children in general. You know, it's very hard to make that conscious choice of 10, 12 hours a day, I'm not going to be home. I'm not going to have that time with my children because I need to work. Really sound advice there. Thank you. You've talked about, obviously, the, the support that you have for, for him on a daily basis, the care, your mum helping out. You mentioned a family network. Is that families with children with Emanuel syndrome? When we were trying to get Sebastian's diagnoses, our genetic counsellor was not the best genetic counsellor out there. And she made things very, very difficult for us because she didn't quite believe the blood test that was done by LabCorp. She wanted another agency to do the blood test and so on and so forth. And at the time, this was before ACA in the United States. So pretty much everything was was out of pocket. Like just to have Sebastian's array done, you know, still costs about $500 out of pocket. At the time, my husband, uh, Sebastian's father, he was going to have the test done because it's a carrier parent, right? So either he's the carrier parent or I'm the carrier parent. And it turned out that Robert was the carrier parent. But in that whole process, as I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my son, I stumble upon a website. Now, mind you, again, this is like, this is 2009. This is, you know, not, not a whole lot was going on, on on the web, but there was a website called c22c.org. And it was for all chromosomal abnormalities that involve the 22nd chromosome, right? So I'm on this website. I'm looking at every single condition possible. And I stumble upon Emanuel syndrome. And I read it. And I said, that's my son. My son has Emanuel syndrome. And you could not take that thought away from me at all. I was so solid in the fact. So while me and the geneticist are talking, I said, I said, give me 10 minutes. So I go on C22C, I email the webmaster, Stephanie Reese St. Pierre, and I email her and I said, listen, I said, I'm at the geneticist's office. I know my son has Emanuel syndrome. They're fighting me on his diagnosis and I need the diagnosis page in order to put him on any type of Medicaid that would help cover all these medical expenses that I just see looming, right? Coming, coming towards us like a freight train. Within five minutes, Stephanie calls me, right? She, I give her my number. She calls me and she goes, do you have any of the paperwork? I said, yes. I said, I'll email it to you right now. And so we're on the phone as she's reading the paperwork and she goes, absolutely. She goes, Sebastian has Emanuel syndrome. She goes, are you telling me that you like clinically diagnosed him before you even understood any of this crazy paperwork? And I said, yeah, I guess I did because, you know, I, I, I needed to know. I, I really, truly needed to, to understand I wanted to walk out of that office with knowledge. You know, I didn't want to walk out of that office with more testing and more testing and more testing because I feel like we've been doing that for months, you know, like, like, what is it? What's going on? And so with that, she immediately put me in, you know, our ES group with Yahoo groups and and Facebook groups had just launched. So with that, I met about 120 families that were active on the group. Within about six months, we took a trip to Texas to meet about 13 families, including a set of twins with Emanuel syndrome. And it was just fascinating to see how much, it's, it's truly a spectrum disorder, like Down syndrome. You know, you have, your, you have the kids that are very low on the spectrum, and those are the ones who are probably vented or who, you know, probably have some other 
abnormalities in regards to Emanuel syndrome and how the chromosomes decided to affect them. And then you have, you know, people on the higher end of the spectrum where the kids are maybe know like 300 signs or they know 300 receptive words. They, they truly are trying to understand the world that they live in. And I'm still part of that group. And we still talk. One of my best friends I met in that group because she was living in Georgia at the time. And our, our children are a month apart. So it was very interesting to see, to have that friendship, to, to be able to understand, okay, what's next? What's, you know, what, what should we do? And because she lived very close to Atlanta, we were able to kind of piggyback on the doctors. So when one doctor's like, wow, I've never heard of ES before, I could say, well, you're about to meet another kid with ES because they just made an appointment and you'll see them in three weeks. So rare that the doctors, you know, they don't know of it. They, they've never heard of it because like I said, ES is usually on the non-viable list. They, they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't hear it. They wouldn't have known, known about it. But I'm still super active in those groups. We've kind of tapered down how many people have joined over the years. And I contribute that mostly due to testing done when you're pregnant, right? There's a lot more variety of testing that aren't so invasive and can risk the fetus or anything happening to the fetus. There's been the maternity gene test along with the CBS test, along with amnio. And with that, and with more families wanting to know ahead of time, if they're, they're going to be running into any issues, I believe that's kind of contributed to the downturn of ES kids kind of joining the group. On top of that, like I said, a lot of ES presents itself as, as cerebral palsy. And once you have that CP diagnosis, genetic testing isn't something that people really think about or even know that it truly exists and what it may mean for them. So there may be another hundred ES kids out there, but they've been told they have cerebral palsy and you know, we just don't, we just don't know. Support is, is so, so important, even if they're you know, a Facebook group or a Yahoo group, because these are a circle of families who have gone through the same thing you have gone through. They have had to deal with the same doctors. They've had to deal with the same issues because even though as much as ES is a spectrum disorder, it varies on the intensity of the organs, what's wrong with them. So some kids may have very severe breathing problems. Some children may have been born with abnormalities in, in various body parts, including their genitals, right? And it's very difficult to ask someone, you know, like, hey, so what do I do if my child, you know, my child has had this condition, what, what should I do? Most people have no idea. They're just like, how is your kid alive? Like, how can a child be born with no, no anus? Like, how is that even possible? And it's like, it's possible, you know? And, but even many doctors are just like, we don't know what to do. We just, you know, we've never really run into this before. We've never really seen this before. So having that group of friends, they can say, yep, we've, we've seen it. We have it. The best doctor, if you're willing to travel is here. If you live in this state, probably this doctor would be, would be good. And it's kind of like our mini referral system. So it's really good to kind of feel like not crazy, right? Like, mm -hmm. am I really seeing this? Am I really understanding this correctly? Or am I just losing my mind? And oftentimes they're like, no, you're not crazy. <laughs> Feeling you're in the same boat with others mm -hmm. is very powerful, isn't it? Very powerful. Absolutely. Helps to, to normalize Absolutely. something that's very specialist for you. Well, that's mm -hmm. fantastic, Emily. Thank you for telling us all about Sebastian. I suppose as a final question, 
for any parents who perhaps were at the beginning of a journey similar to yours or somebody that was finding things quite difficult is there any final piece of advice or something you'd wish you'd known probably lots of things you wish you'd known but is there any final takeaway you would give to our listeners today I had a rule with Sebastian once he was diagnosed and that rule was I am not thinking more ahead than six months I am just thinking of the next six months. And the reason for that is because when you have a child that's diagnosed with something as severe as ES, and you start to think about their future, you can get very depressed very quickly, right? You, you know, when you start thinking, my child's never going to get married, right? My child's never going to have children. I will never have grandchildren, right? It can put you in a spot very, very fast that you just shouldn't be in for a long period of time. Yes, mourn those things. Absolutely. Go through your grief cycle, get it done and get it over with. And I say that as abruptly as I do, because when it comes to the quality of your child's life, you need to get on top of that very quickly, right? Because they, there may be things that you may miss. There may be conditions that need attention very, very quickly. So having that six month bracket makes things more manageable. You can say in the next six months, he's going to go to the ENT and he's going to go to his GI doctor. And, you know, we have PT every week at a facility, whatever the case may be. Kind of having those bites, it, it just makes the pill much, much easier, easier to swallow. Find your support group. If it's not family, then it may be friends. If it's not friends, it may be family. If it's neither, Find someone online, find a group online, because even just having a sounding board will also make things a little bit easier. Having the opportunity to vent, having the opportunity to, you know, kind of scream into the void, so to speak, is something that I tell everyone, you know, do it. If you have to go into the, the forest and scream and then get on top of your kid, you go into that forest, you scream your heart out, and then you get back to doing what you need to do because you don't know how long your child may be on this planet and you want to make sure that they are the most comfortable that they can possibly be. They didn't ask to be born, right? It's not an ask to be born. I wanted a kid. So it's my responsibility as a parent to make sure that my child's life with his disability is as easy as it can possibly, possibly be. Don't think you can't do it. People do it all the time. I thought I couldn't do it. I thought I had all the tests that could possibly be done to ensure that I was not going to have a child that was disabled, right? I, that's what I thought that I was having done. And the truth of the matter is we probably missed a couple of the tests because, you know, I was young at the time. I wasn't showing any, you know, any symptoms or anything that we needed to continue testing on. But get on top of that when it comes to their care once they're out. I don't believe that you can't do it. People do it all the time. People take care of disabled kids all the time. Some people even choose to take care of disabled kids. They just only adopt disabled kids, right? So it, it is possible. Is it, is it hard? Yeah. Is it, is it a struggle sometimes? Absolutely. But your kid isn't going to really remember the struggle. They're going to remember, you know, mommy was there for me. Daddy was there for me when I had to do this and I'm okay now. That's what's really great about the resilience of children's minds as much as you think something is so traumatizing, sometimes for a kid, it's, it's not that bad. Probably worse on the parent than it is on the kid. 
you can do it. Anyone can do it if you choose to do it and if you want to do it. But I'm also, I'm very, very pro-choice. If you truly feel in the heart of your hearts that you cannot do it, then you need to make the choice because I'd rather people make a conscious choice than to be thrown something that they know they cannot handle. Not everyone is graciously born with perfect mental health. I know I was not born with perfect mental health, but I wasn't really quite given that choice. You know, I did not know Sebastian was going to be as severe as he was. But if I was able to do it, I truly feel that so many other people can do it as well. I didn't have a whole lot of support when Sebastian was younger and I was kind of running on autopilot. We got to check his legs. We got to check his stomach. We got to check his, his ears. We got to check his nose. We got to check all these things. And that's great. And you do that, but you also have to take time for yourself. You also have to give yourself some of that mental health break. Find the support that you can, find the people that you trust. And if you need a night out to go to a dinner, then take yourself to a dinner, right? You know, if your guilty pleasures are watching, you know, really terrible Netflix shows, go ahead, watch those really terrible Netflix shows. Because I promise you, when you wake up tomorrow, the problems are still going to be there. It's not going to change. Not a lot is going to change. But the only thing that can change is how you handle it. And the better you can figure out how you yourself can handle it, the better off your child is going to be. Disability or not, this kind of goes across regardless if your child has problems or not. If, if you are mentally able and mentally well, then you can pretty much handle just about anything that life will throw at you. And, and life will throw you a lot of weird things, <laughs> a, a lot of crazy things that you never thought you'd ever, ever in a million years would ever have to deal with. Right. So um, that would probably be most most of my my advice that I would give to, to any new parent. Thank you so much. I so appreciate how honest, practical and, and very inspiring you've been with me today. Thank you so much for telling me all about Sebastian Absolutely. and your your lives together. He sounds like a special person. And and thank you to all our listeners who've tuned in as well. I'm sure they'll have found it incredibly helpful hearing you talk and, and offer your advice. So thank you. Thanks. If you'd like to find out more about City Parents, please do visit us at cityparents.co.uk. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook, and you can stay tuned for more from City Parents Talk coming soon. Goodbye.